So in this episode, we have a TV ad for Southwest Airlines, a movie starring Benedict Cumberbatch, a famous and important rabbi from the United Kingdom, and a Baptist church in North Carolina. I know it sounds kind of like the start of a weird joke, except it has four parts to it, which violates the comedic rule of three, and I would never do that. So no, it's not a joke, but those are four things that we'll pull together to help us consider what the crucifixion of Jesus might mean. Loved ones, what's going on? I'm Bruce, and this is A Bigger Story. So about three years ago, Southwest Airlines ran a TV commercial that I thought was pretty funny. It was set on a medieval battlefield where the peasants had unsuccessfully attempted a revolt against their feudal lords. And they stood there, dejected, defeated. They dropped their swords and shields to the ground. And then one of the feudal overlords was determined to punish their leader, this guy named Fenwick. But the overlord didn't know who among the peasant army was Fenwick. And he demanded to know, which one of you is Fenwick? And in this wonderful moment of solidarity and self-sacrificial courage, all of the peasants began to raise their hands to claim that they were Fenwick. The comic twist comes when one not-so-bright peasant rushes forward because he has the wrong shield, and he blurts out to the actual Fenwick, Hey, Fenwick, is this your shield? Because mine doesn't look like this. And comically, the jig was up. Here's the actual ad. Who amongst you goes by the name Fenwick? Tell me, and the rest of you will be spared. I am Fenwick. I am Fenwick. I am Fenwick. Hey, Fenwick, have you seen my shield? This has got vertical stripes on it. Mine had horizontal. It's October as I record this episode, and the baseball playoffs are underway. And as big a baseball fan as I am, I'm kind of worried that I'm going to be playing inside baseball on this episode. I'm going to take a risk, though, because there's this concept in Christianity. In fact, it's central to Christianity, and I think it needs a reframe as we seek to build and tell a bigger story. This inside baseball concept I'm talking about is what's called in Christian theology and doctrine, atonement. Atonement. And the I Am Fenwick commercial is a near-perfect example of what many, if not most, Christians have come to understand as atonement. In that ad, I Am Fenwick, the critical moment is when the feudal lord says, Who amongst you goes by the name Fenwick? Tell me, and the rest of you will be spared. What he's saying is they've all done something bad. They've turned against their feudal lords. But the feudal overlord will be satisfied if one person steps forward and takes the punishment, which will certainly be death. And if that one person will do that, all the others will be spared. So that one person, Fenwick, can atone for the sin of all the rest. In the year 920, an Italian monk, theologian, philosopher, and bishop, because back then you just grouped all of those things together, his name was Anselmo Diasto, who lived in England, where he served as Archbishop of Canterbury and later was named a saint, Saint Anselm of Canterbury. And Anselmo, or Anselm, proposed this theory of atonement, atonement describing the meaning of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And Anselm's doctrine came to be called substitutionary atonement because it went like this. Humans had sinned, in fact, were innately sinful, but one person, in this instance, Jesus Christ, stepped forward, was tortured and killed, and this act atoned for the sins of humanity. 
The fact that Anselm was in feudal England in 920 is important data. Listen to this from the late biblical scholar Marcus Borg. Anselm thought and wrote and perceived through the cultural model drawn from his time and place, namely, the relationship of a medieval lord to his peasants. If a peasant disobeyed the lord, could the lord simply forgive if he wanted to? No, says Marcus Borg. Why? Because that might imply that disobedience didn't matter that much. Instead, to effectively rule, compensation had to be made. Nothing less than the honor and order of the Lord and his land were at stake. And Anselm of Canterbury, says Borg, then applied that model to humans' relationship with God. Humans have been disobedient, deserve to be punished, and yet God loves us, wants to forgive us, but the price of sin must be paid. So Jesus is a human being who is also divine and thus perfect and without sin is the one who took that punishment on behalf of all humanity. One of the things Marcus Borg was saying is that our understandings and perspectives are conditioned, deeply conditioned by our own cultural context, always. There are people who believe that we can somehow transcend our cultural biases and be objective evaluators of ideas. I don't think so. Definitely, we should try to peel back the layers of our own cultural biases and the cultural biases of those who first asserted something as being objective truth. But at the end of the day, whatever we claim as objective truth is always going to be limited by our own subjective biases. So Borg lays out Anselm's cultural situation to help us understand how Anselm came up with this notion of substitutionary atonement. This notion that someone has to pay for the sins of all is only about a thousand years old. Anselm was around 920 AD. So there was a whole thousand years before Anselm where this idea was not the commonly held understanding of what Jesus' crucifixion and death on the cross meant. So Marcus Borg says, on historical grounds, this atonement theory put forward by Anselm is not ancient Christianity, it's not traditional Christianity, it's not Orthodox Christianity. Here are three key problems that Marcus Borg had with Anselm's doctrine of substitutionary atonement. First is that it emphasized God's anger, an anger that needs to be satisfied. Secondly, it tends to make Jesus' death more important than his life. And when it does that, it obscures his message about the way we're supposed to live, the way of living that Jesus was passionate about. And thirdly, it makes believing in Jesus more important than following him. In other words, what matters most is that he paid for our sins and that we believe it, period. And this is one of the reasons that more and more people struggle with institutional Christianity, because the question becomes, which is it? God is love, or God is angry and needs to be appeased by someone being killed on a cross? Is God's love only after Jesus is crucified and the appeasement, the atonement is accomplished? Or is God infinitely loving and eternally loving? And if so, why would an infinitely loving, eternally loving God require a punishment, a blood sacrifice, an appeasement? Now, this whole idea of atonement and its ultimate meaning could be like a whole university course, a seminary course. Volumes and volumes have been written on it. So what I'm suggesting in this episode is not exhaustive. And so if I get emails saying that I left something out that's important, you're probably right. 
And none of this is to claim that what's going on with Jesus and his crucifixion isn't central to Christianity. It is. But what if it's central for a different reason than Anselm and centuries of Christians after him have thought? Maybe what's central about Jesus's death on the cross involves who did the crucifying? A Roman imperial authority, Pontius Pilate, the imperial governor, and a local puppet ruler, one of the puppet rulers of the House of Herod, and religious authorities who colluded with the imperial authorities and the puppet ruler, and together all three constituted the power system, the domination system of Jesus' time. This is Marcus Borg again. More and more people, peasant families, were losing their land and their poverty was becoming more and more desperate. The domination system killed Jesus because in the name of God, he challenged how they had put the world together and he advocated an alternative that would lead to justice and peace and wholeness and thriving and flourishing for all people, especially the poor and marginalized, not just for the powerful few. And he was beginning to attract a following. And that threatened the domination system. Crucifixion was a Roman form of capital punishment reserved for those who systematically defied imperial authority. There were also others who didn't accommodate. They engaged in violent resistance, but there weren't enough of them to compete against the Roman legions. All it did was lead to death, just death. And Jesus was telling people, don't accommodate and don't use violence because both ways lead to death. And so Jesus took a third way and demonstrated active, nonviolent resistance to the domination system. In Raleigh, North Carolina, there's a church called Pullen Memorial Baptist Church. I think the majority of people, especially in the U.S., are shocked and surprised to learn that there are Baptists who are not like the conservative and often fundamentalist Southern Baptist Convention Baptists. Pullen Memorial Baptist Church is part of this amazing movement of what I would call progressive Baptists who are very, very radical in their love for and welcome of and advocacy on behalf of those who are excluded, deemed unacceptable, especially by conservative Christian groups. If you were to go to Pullen Memorial Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, or look them up on the web, here's what you would find that they say that they're about. Jesus and his followers welcome the certain and the doubtful, the excluded and the included, people who are able and people who are challenged, rich, poor, and in between, divorced, partnered, single, and widowed, atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, Catholic, Protestant, Islamic, Hindu, Jewish, or nothing, heterosexual, homosexual, transgendered, African-American, Asian, Latino, citizens, and guests. I just love reading that. And not only do they welcome all of those, but they love them and partner with them for the additional thriving and flourishing of their neighborhood, their city, their world. And it's very different from what many experience from American church life. So how exactly is this idea of sacrifice and atonement an expression not of punishment, but of love? For that, let's turn to Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He died just last year, and when he did, the world lost a really important public intellectual. He had served as chief rabbi of the United Kingdom 
and he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth, so he was officially Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And Rabbi Sachs once said, we love what we are willing to make sacrifices for. Sacrifice is the choreography of love. A happily married couple is constantly making sacrifices for one another. Parents make huge sacrifices for their children. People drawn to a calling to heal the sick or care for the poor or fight for justice for the weak against the strong often sacrifice remunerative careers for the sake of their ideals. And he continues, in ages of patriotism, people make sacrifices for their country. In strong communities, people make sacrifices for one another when someone is in distress or needs help. Sacrifice is the super glue of relationship. It bonds us to one another. That is why in the biblical age, says Rabbi Sachs, sacrifices were so important because at the beating heart of Judaism is love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In other faiths, the driving motive behind sacrifice was fear, fear of the anger and power of the gods. In Judaism, it was love. I think it's safe to say that for the Jewish rabbi Jesus, his death on a cross was a sacrifice not to absorb punishment, but to communicate love and to communicate that everything he had taught them was of such ultimate value for humanity that it was worth one's very life. Maybe you've seen the movie The Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch and Kira Knightley. Cumberbatch plays Alan Turing, the brilliant mathematician and computer scientist who led the breaking of German encrypted codes during World War II and is considered to be one of the fathers of artificial intelligence. Now, Turing, at least as Cumberbatch portrayed him in the movie, was not known for possessing the gift of humor. So in the movie, it comes as a sort of surprise when Turing, played by Cumberbatch, tells a joke. And here's the joke he tells. Two explorers are in a jungle, and they hear a lion. The first one runs off to find a place where both of them can hide. The second one starts putting on his running shoes. And the first one says to the second one, you're crazy. You can't run faster than the lion. And the second one says to the first one, I don't need to run faster than the lion. I just need to run faster than you. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs once shared that joke and said that it illustrated the classic tension between the altruist and the survivalist. Which of the two gets eaten by the lion? The altruist, Darwin's theory, survival of the fittest. So according to Darwin, altruists should become extinct over time because they're the ones that always get eaten by the lion. And yet, said Rabbi Sachs, Darwin realized that in every human society ever known, it's the altruists, not the survivalists, who are admired. And Rabbi Sachs summarized that this way. We hand on our genes as individuals, but we only survive as members of groups. And for a group to survive, it has to have altruism among its members. It has to have members who put the interests of the group above their own interests. We need altruism to create groups, and without groups, we don't survive. 
So what if instead of understanding the crucifixion of Jesus as a punishment to appease an angry God, we understand it as an act of divine love, a demonstration of self-sacrificial love, and a summons to all of us to love in that same way, a love so extravagant that it includes and stands in solidarity with the certain and the doubtful, the excluded and the included, people who are able and people who are challenged, rich, poor, and in between, divorced, partnered, single, widowed, atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, Catholic, Protestant, Islamic, Hindu, Jewish, or nothing, heterosexual, homosexual, and transgendered, African-American, Asian, Latino, citizens, and guests. That would certainly be a bigger story. Thanks for listening. Stay in touch. We'd love to get your questions and talk about them here on A Bigger Story. Bruce at brucecold.tv. Remember, you are loved.